Today's program is part of a special series brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership with funding provided by ACES Aware. Together, we are working to raise awareness about the effects of adverse childhood experiences in hopes of building a healthier community and a brighter future for our children. Dr. B explains the importance of acknowledging our stressors of the past in order to thrive in the present. Plus, she shares practical tips for coping through challenging times and building greater resiliency so you and your family can enjoy healthier and more fulfilling life. Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B. Where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. All right, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about prevention is intervention. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, please email me at contact at drbconnections.com. Or if you want to know more about me, just go to my website at www.drbconnections.com. Now let's get started. Prevention is intervention. Anybody who knows me knows I love talking about this. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So let's kick it off and get started. It's 2021. We have a lot of opportunities. I want to say Happy New Year again to everybody because we're still in January and I might even continue to say it in February. But we need to really start thinking about prevention because we are getting buried by spending all of our money on interventions, and that's just a huge waste. So let's start off by talking about money for a minute. If we all work together, we can save zillions of dollars. And when I say zillions, yeah, that's what I mean. Zillions, billions, trillions, millions, all the illions of dollars, as well as a lifetime of pain. There are estimates that child abuse and neglect in the United States of America costs approximately $124 billion annually. You know what? Most people can't even really wrap their head around that number. That is one heck of a big number. Now, there's a recent study in California that found that ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, have health-related costs to California alone, just California, that are approximately $113 billion a year. So interestingly, the principal investigator of this study, his name's Ted Miller, and he's from the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation, also known as PIRE, said that What surprised me most was that even one adverse childhood experience, one ACE, makes a difference in what your likely health trajectory is going to be. We already know this, folks. We know that there's a correlation between trauma and health, physical health. We know that child abuse and neglect and family dysfunction and experiences in early childhood impact our physical and emotional health across the lifespan. So 
we got to get started. This is an insight. This is an opportunity. We don't need to be scrambling to make ends meet if we all take a step back and start to really contribute to the solutions. If we take better care of people, then we live longer, healthier, and more productive lives. We can all do this for each other. So that's really the problem is we haven't embraced a full commitment to what intervention means. And I'm and I want to talk about this in terms of the saying leave a life print because one of the problems with that is that we don't look at the long game. We're we're always looking at the short run. And when it comes to adverse childhood experiences, they play into the long game. We have to invest early and heavily in people's lives, in children's lives, in families' lives, in our communities. And then we may not live out to see all the beneficial results that occur 50 years from now. But we have to be able to tolerate that because it's what we're doing to leave a life print for the future, for our children, for other people's children, for our world. So I just want people to really think about investing investing early in the gains that we can have long term. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this book out there because it makes me inspired and it's by Bettina Love, and it's We Want to Do More Than Survive, and it's just a great book. You should just check it out. So I'm not going to talk about it anymore right now. So let's jump into the neuroscience and sort of personal experience of this episode. We know that the best intervention for a baby is to take care of his or her's mom or caregivers, parents, dad, whoever that particular person is. We know that we're protecting a baby when we have the well-being of the caregiver parent in our hands as well. The first year of life in particular, but the subsequent years also bring rapid fire growth in the brain and in development. We can't We just cannot leave this to chance. We have to build a society that invests in this critical period to maximize our society's potential and so that we all benefit as a whole. But how do we do that? I get it. It's complicated. Well, we do it not by taking people's children away or by raising them in some standardized fashion. We're a nation built on diversity and difference. We're biologically wired to care for our young. So the answer is in scaffolding and support. That's what leads to resilience. We create protective systems and buffers in every aspect of our environment to protect children and babies and their parents. So because their parents are already neurobiologically invested in caring for their young. Nobody wants that more than the parent. It's important for people to believe that and to start to really think about it and understand, digging deeper and asking, huh, I wonder why 
this parent is struggling taking care of their child because deep down, I know that that's the most important thing to them. See how that feels different than, oh my gosh, they're not, they don't take care of their children. It feels different when we're all invested in it together. Fairness does not mean that everyone gets the same amount of the same thing. What fairness really means and what equity really means is that everyone gets what they need to contribute to the whole. Okay, okay, I already know people are going to say, that's socialism. It's not socialism. This is this is smart entrepreneurial thinking about making an investment that's going to pay off in the future and save money and lives. So it's not about throwing everything in the pot and redistributing it. It's about investing in our community in ways that benefit all of us, especially when it comes to children. We have a responsibility to take care of all of our children, but it's also an excellent investment to spend time and money to educate and to raise a child rather than imprison that person later at a much higher price. And when I say educate, I don't mean everybody goes to school in the exact same way. I think that there's a lot of flexibility in education as well. We need to allow people to create educational organizations, I'm going to say, that meet the needs of different communities and and different kids because we're not all the same, folks. When we protect the vulnerable from the invincible first, we create strong, healthy, thoughtful, and relational communities. Let me say that again. When we protect the vulnerable from the invincible first, So there are people in our society who are invincible, who have power that, one, they probably didn't earn, two, can be wielded relentlessly and is unkind, and three, goes unchecked. Like, there's just no way around not knowing that that's That is a reality. So we have to protect vulnerable people, and mostly vulnerable people are children. However, they're also people who have grown up vulnerable. That's how we create strong, healthy, thoughtful, and relational communities. I want to tell you about some research that, oh my goodness, it's so fun to reread and think about this this project because it is so relevant to today. It's the Frank Porter Graham Abecedarian Project. I love saying the word Abecedarian. So this was an early childhood intervention for poor mothers to care for their babies and themselves during the first five years of life. So somebody back in the 70s decided to do this research study called the Abbasidarian Project. And what Abbasidarian, the Abbasidarian Project was, was this early childhood program that began in infancy. This, this started with babies and continued for five years, their first five years of life. And it was very intensive and very intentional. So if I were a young mom today, 
What I'd want to know is, okay, so what did that mean? What did the Abbasidarian project look like? What does it mean to have an intensive, high-quality early childhood program that really leads to better outcomes and life results for my children? High-quality early childhood education is not the same as child care. The most important thing to know is what the criteria is for high-quality care. That's what we need to latch on to, and that's what we need to build into our society. So the study played out like this. There were 111 high-risk mothers based, it was based on their education level. Most of them had, on average, a 10th grade level of education, family income, very low income, and other factors that put them at risk for not being able to take care of their children or put their children at risk of abuse and neglect. Half of the infants were assigned to the control group and half of the infants were assigned to an intervention group. In the intervention group, the infants received six to eight hours of care per day, five days a week. Now, this is one of the things that I really like about the Abbasidarian project is that all the participants, even the ones in the control group, receive nutritional supplements, social services, and health care. So, so we didn't just leave these babies completely out in the cold, which, you know, this study probably wouldn't be able to be pulled off in the same way today because of our research standards. However, we've learned a lot of things from studies that probably wouldn't be able to be done today in the same way. So we can really appreciate the value of the information gleaned from this study. I certainly do. So all participants received these nutritional supplements, social services, and health care. The, con- the intervention group received educational activities that were game-based. They emphasized language And the curriculum was responsive to each individual child's needs. So what I like to say is it was responsive, which is so, so important to a baby's early childhood. And it was communication. So they learned how to communicate with the family and the babies in order to build the curriculum for the first five years of life that was appropriate for that particular baby. So it was individualized. I've often said, you know, we do individualized education plans, IEPs, for children with exceptional needs. I believe that education should be an IEP for everyone. Everybody needs an individualized education plan. So I digress. We'll move on. In the Abbasidarian study in the intervention group, the infant-teacher ratios were very, very low. Think, you know, if you're a parent, gosh, taking care of one infant can be a lot. Taking care of two infants can be a lot. Taking care of three infants can really be a lot. But that was the ratio, teacher ratio, one to three infant to teacher. And by the time the children became were in kindergarten, the group size grew to one to six. Okay, we don't we don't really have these kind of ratios in typical childcare or educational settings. Sometimes you might find this, but what's also really important to remember is 
relationships do matter. So it can't just be any teacher. We need to have primary care teachers who are the ones who are, if these three infants are with a particular caregiver or two, that they remain with those caregivers because people are not interchangeable. So you don't want to go, if we, if we change the caregiver every single time the child went into this program, then they would they wouldn't have the attachment and the security and it would be highly stressful. So that would have actually impacted the results as well. So another thing that the intervention group families had was a pediatrician. They had social services and resources available to the families like transportation and respite care on weekends if they needed it. So as again, a young parent, I would ask myself, how this compares to the children, the child teacher ratio at the school that your child may go to or child care that your child may or may not attend. We know that education is essential. Like really, we can't stop people from learning things. That that's just doesn't make sense for how humanity works. We're we're moving forward and developing forward people. So education is essential, no question. However, we do need to employ the most effective models for long-term physical and emotional health outcomes, not just focus on academic results, and especially not through primary standardized testing or other irrelevant measures of assessment that we use on children on a fairly regular basis. We've gotten out of control with standardized testing and we need to back the train up and recognize that this is not how to measure the long-term benefits of our investment in humanity. We know without question, that this model of care, support, and intervention works. We've followed these babies for four decades. So investing in high-quality early care and education that's community-based and supportive of the family is one way to level the playing field for children and families to reduce ACEs and trauma by 50% in one generation. Remember, that's the goal of the ACEs Aware Initiative, reduce trauma, reduce adverse childhood experiences by 50% in the course of one generation. So we know from the Abbasidarian Project, this criteria, when it's met, has a huge impact on long-term health consequences of the children and the families. But we have to follow the rules. You can't just pick and choose and cherry pick the ones that work and ignore some of the other ones that are really important. This is also how we save money through prevention rather than spending money later on with interventions for mental health, physical health, imprisonment, the cost of abuse, the cost of addiction, and the cost of dysfunction in a family. All of these things sound like ACEs. Yep. They're ACEs. This is what adverse childhood experiences are. And they cost us a lot of money when we all come together from different fields 
and we put the money back in the pot and say, wait a second, they all start at the beginning of life. In 2014, there was this collaboration of scientists. Somewhere from the University College of London and somewhere from the University of Chicago. And they jump ahead four decades. Remember, these babies are not babies anymore. This research was done in the 70s. All participants in the control group and the intervention group had blood drawn and underwent a physical exam. Okay, how cool is this? Like, I'm I'm a big fan of longitudinal research. It's just super hard to do. So one of the reasons I love Emmy Werner, who's the mother of resilience, is because she too did longitudinal research with those babies in Kauai and realized that it was one loving relationship that made such a huge difference in the level of resiliency that a person had across the lifespan. But we can't know that unless we study people across the lifespan. So here we are jumping ahead four decades. All the participants had blood drawn, undergo a physical exam. And the cool thing too is the physician had no idea which adults in the group were from the control group versus the intervention group. The physicians just did their blood draws and physical exams. So this is really the first time that actual biomarkers, as opposed to just self-reports of illness, were used and compared for adult individuals in a study to compare their early childhood education experience and sort of lay it on top of their health and well-being as an adult. So you may have heard of the person named, he's a Nobel Prize winner actually, James Heckman. And he's the person who actually took all the statistics. He like created the statistical analysis to figure out how if we invest all this money, how if we take the money in early childhood and invest it early how much money that we will save in the long run. So James Heckman actually won a Nobel Peace Peace Prize for this. What the Frank Porter Graham team and Heckman's team determined was that the people who received high-quality early care and education in the 70s through the Abecedarian Project are healthier now, today, 40 years later. And even more importantly, it shows that they're they're not only in better health right now, but their health outcomes in the future also look better than the control group. So this study absolutely breaks new ground and falls hand in hand with the landmark study of the ACEs research. And we can see the intersection between how high-quality early care and education and health are related. And then we, can, we really can intersect how poverty and racism and classism, gender differences, and marginalized communities are impacted by not having access to resources to better their lives and better the lives of their children and how that cycle just then is perpetuated and continues on 
to tell the negative story when we literally have the answer of intervention in our hands. We have the roadmap. So I hope, I hope that this is inspiring and educational for everybody in terms of thinking about what we're doing at the beginning of life. The Abyssidarian Project is all about resilience and optimism. The study revealed that the participants from the Abyssidarian program are healthier overall than the control group. There's lots of markers that we've been able to find in this study, particularly when we've now done the, remember, they had their blood drawn and they had physical exams. Everybody, nobody was separated, the control group and the intervention group until after the information was taken. So what we learned is in their mid-30s, so almost four decades later, the intervention group have lower rates of pre-hypertension in their mid-30s, and the males in the study have a lower incidence of full-blown hypertension in their mid-30s. So a third thing is that the group, the intervention group, experienced a significantly lower risk for coronary heart disease, which is one of the leading causes of death in the U.S. So we can see the parallels here between health, physical health, and high-quality early childhood, and I want to even say family and community support programs and resilient building communities, because this is how how this plays out. When we pull all the pieces together, we really can sew a quilt together. So there's a thing called the metabolic syndrome, which is associated with a higher rate or a higher risk for heart disease, stroke, and diabetes. And the intervention group, again, exhibited a lower risk for that metabolic syndrome. It seems evident that if the brain and the body are wiring up for life initially, you know, babies are born and they're pretty much... They're not born a blank slate, so that's not what I'm saying. But babies are born ready to figure out the environment that they need to live and love and survive in. And so if that's happening at the, beginning of the, at the beginning of life, it makes perfect sense that we need to be focusing on, okay, let's get them off to the right, let's get them off on the right foot because That's where we get the most bang for our buck when we invest in children at the front end, at the very beginning, and their families. And children need their families. This idea of taking babies away from parents does not solve the problem because literally, right off the bat, losing a parent, even an abusive parent, is an adverse childhood experience. And it counts as an ACE on the original ACE score. 
Now, I'm saying this to you as a person who is an adoptive parent. My oldest child came to me through adoption, but I recognize that by me getting to be his mama, he still suffered a tremendous loss by losing both of his parents in early childhood when he was four. And and that was the right thing to do. He needed to, you know, he was in a situation where he needed to, his mom was not in a position to take care of him. But that doesn't make her a bad person. And maybe we could have found ways, you know, to support mom so that she could have been a mom who was in a position to be able to take care of him. Maybe not. We don't know that. But those are the questions, the really hard, deep sociological questions that we need to be asking. Is it worth an A score, a one, or should we try harder to keep the baby with the parent or the mama or whoever's caring for them? Really, the mama. Those are hard questions. These are difficult things that we have to talk about, and there's no standardized, easy way to do it. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. We all, we, life is dynamic and we need to work with all the, all the layers and different communities are going to do this differently. And there are communities that already do this in so many ways, naturally and well, that we don't recognize. We, so we have to move away from this concept that there's this easy, broad brushstroke that we can make and have it all be better. It's not easy, and it's okay that it's different for different communities and neighborhoods. We look at the list of the interventions and consider, is this really something that is inaccessible? I don't think it is. If we have intensive, this this was part of the Abecedarian Project early on, intensive pediatric monitoring, improved nutrition, a predictable and less stressful early child care experience, and improved adult education, all these things lead to overall better health outcomes. Okay, these are things we can totally do. We can have intensive pediatric monitoring. We have pediatricians who see babies for well baby checks and visits and check in on them. We have public health nurses who do home visits. Like we have systems in play that can be organized to have ever and in a lot of ways, a lot of babies do have this monitor intensive pediatric monitoring already happening. Improved nutrition, absolutely. We have food insecurity and post-COVID we are really suffering from a lot of food insecurity. But we also are a country with a lot of food waste, and we can improve nutrition in our schools and in our child care programs and make it accessible in families and neighborhoods where fresh food is not accessible today. Again, another systemic racism problem where fresh fruit and vegetables aren't available in a neighborhood or a community So people are forced to eat processed foods more frequently, which lead to higher health risks. Predictable and less stressful early child care experiences. I just think people never talk about this, and it kind of makes me frustrated because 
predictability and consistency lead to stability. You hear, you've heard me say that. And if we know that consistency and predictability lead to stability, why would that not be true in early childhood? Why would that not be true in child care, in education, in school? Wherever children exist, that's what solid relationships give to children is consistency and predictability. When we change people out all the time and change their relationships, we're impacting their needs for life on a mental health care level and a physical health care level. So people, we need to we need to remember and pay attention to the stressfulness of meeting new people and having to figure out how to be okay in an environment with new people. And then recognize that that's exponentially more difficult for a baby or a young child, that they need the security of an attachment and a consistent relationship in order to feel stable and have stability. Improved adult education. Okay, we can no longer say that there's not information out there that help us to become a better parent or a better teacher or to do things better. We have so much information. It's almost information overload. But the truth is that we know how to do a lot of these things that we want to do. We just have to commit to the timeline and we have to commit to the budget and accept that the rewards will come, but it's going to take a generation, maybe more. But it's never going to happen when we don't start. So it sounds like a lot, but reducing ACEs, we already know, leads to huge, huge health outcomes, better health outcomes. That's it. Resilience is measurable and attainable, and we've got the science on our side. So... There, there it is. That's my optimism that we're going to embrace it and move forward. I already feel that way because of the ACEs Aware Initiative and that we're moving in the direction of raising awareness that's inspirational, educational, and relational, most importantly. Let's do actionable takeaways. First, there's a sci- there are scientific links to the quality of care an infant receives and their long-term health effects and benefits. Okay, we know this. It's a choice that we make from day one. Investments pay off massively when we give them time to be successful. We can't leave parenting to chance, and we can't leave early care of children to chance either. And at the same time, I want to be really, really clear that that does not mean that every parent has to parent the same way. There is no one way to parent children, and there is no one way to do school or education. There's lots of ways. We are a dynamic, we are dynamic human beings, and we are born ready to learn from our environment and our families and our communities. So it's okay 
if we learn and do things differently because then we can go out and teach each other how we did things and how it turned out great and then bring them into our extended families and communities. But we need the resources. We need accessibility that match the child's developmental needs and meet the family's economic needs. I've talked about this before. Children are born into families when when people are younger. That's just the order how life goes. I get it. There are parents who have children when they're older. But we cannot punish young parents by not supporting them and especially not supporting their children just because they're young. That makes no sense for us as a community or a world. Every single child is a necessary and a worthwhile investment. Start a conversation about early childhood and talk about the importance of how prevention is the intervention for raising resilient children, families, and communities. With that, go out and leave a life print. I love you. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life print. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Delusional Optimism brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership. We hope you're encouraged by Dr. B's message and find her tips helpful for managing life stressors and building a more resilient self. For more episodes in this special series, please visit St. Agnes Medical Center's website at www.samc.com. This episode is produced and published by the editing team at TruthWork Media. TruthWork Media is a full-fledged podcasting and social media agency located in South Bend, Indiana with clients all around the world. For more information, visit them at truthworkmedia.com. These materials and all discussions of these materials are for educational purposes only and do not constitute medical or mental health advice. The presenter is not a licensed mental health or medical service provider. If you need medical or mental health care or advice, you should contact your doctor or therapist, or you can contact your insurance company for a referral. This show and all of its contents are copyright 2020 Dr. B. Leave a Life Print. Reproduction or use requires written consent of Dr. Kristen Beasley.